Good morning, Encounter Church. It's good to be able to be with you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. You'll find uh, the book of Acts there in uh, the New Testament, actually near the end of the Bible. If you look at the Bible here that I have on the pulpit, you'll see uh, that it's, it, it is quite a ways back. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that you found there at your seat, you'll find Acts chapter 24 on page 1591 or 1591, Acts chapter 24. Before we uh, jump in here, I just want to uh, give a, a congratulations to Jade Hartledge is in the house. You all, met, some of you know why, uh, for the rest of you who don't know why, uh, Jade, uh, over the course of the last week or so, was competing out in Iowa, and uh, just a couple years ago, Jade took up uh, track and field. And uh, little did she know, well, maybe she knew, I don't know, but the rest of us had no idea that out from this young lady would spring this incredible track star. Uh, she was participating in the Junior Olympics, I believe, there in Iowa, and in several events, she placed in the top 10. <laughs> so we can uh, congratulate her on that and her team. Uh, her team, the 4x100 relay, uh, I think got third place, right, in, in the nation. And so uh, what, what a deal, right? So all that being said, even if there's a donut at the end of the finish line, Jade will not, I, I, I will never beat Jade in, in a sprint at all, right? She's going to beat me every time. And so Jade, uh, but with that, right, so with that, Think about this, church. God has now given Jade, given her this wonderful opportunity to take the gifts that he has given her and to glorify God in that. And, and that's, that's how God works, right? God gives each of us unique opportunities to to, to use those gifts, to use those skills, to use those abilities. God even brings uh, unique circumstances, right, in our lives. Uh, takes us through even difficulties. And, and through them, we are given the opportunity to glorify God. Even the passage that Michael uh, Fay read er earlier from 1 Thessalonians where it said... Um, Right? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Uh, that in every situation, God has given us these opportunities. And so, Jade, what a platform God has presented to you to, to, to show the Lord, to, glor to show the world, to glorify God through that. Right? As you, right? I mean, maybe as you're running, you say, Jesus loves you. I don't know how, how you want to do that. At the end, right? At the finish line. Um, but praise the Lord, we're glad that you came back to us here, uh, for sure, Jade. Good, good job. Okay, so hopefully you're there at Acts chapter 24. Now, some of you are right now thinking, but wait a second, because last night my dad asked me, he said, so Michael, tomorrow, are we finishing Acts chapter 21? Because if you were here last week, and if you've been, if you've been following along with us, we've been going through Acts chapter, the, the book of Acts in this teaching series titled, We Are Witnesses, and last week, you'll remember... We, uh, we stopped there midway in chapter 21 with many of Paul's friends saying, don't go to Jerusalem, right? Because if you remember Agabus, the prophet, he came 
And he said, whoever's belt this is, and he's taking Paul's belt, and he says, whoever's belt this is, uh, you will be bound, right? You, you will be, you, you, right? You, you will be taken captive there in Jerusalem. Uh, you'll be arrested. And so Paul's friends are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. But Paul is, is committed. He's on a mission. He, he believes, he's confident that God has called him to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the message. That is the primary message, the only message that Paul is taking around as he's traveling around and, and telling people about Jesus. He is saying that Jesus is alive. Church, that is also our primary message is to tell the world that Jesus is alive and that, that Jesus changes everything because of his resurrection. And so we see here at there in chapter 21, his friends say, Paul, don't go, to, don't go to Jerusalem. Now we are going to jump, okay, if I can kind of use some running terminology, we're going to sprint past chapters 22 and chapters 23 uh, just for the sake of a fall schedule. I'm actually already like six weeks, I've gone six weeks longer in this series than I, than I was originally planning to. Uh, so, so we are going to we're going to sprint past a couple of chapters, but let me give you just a brief overview of chapters uh, 22 and 23, because at the end of chapter t- 21, Paul continues on, and he does indeed arrive in Jerusalem. And while Paul is there in Jerusalem, right, the, the warnings that Paul had received regarding him being bound, him being falsely accused, uh, it comes true, and we see that uh, there in chapter 21, at the end of 21, Paul is falsely accused, and, and a riot ensues, and the people there began to, they, they took a hold of Paul, and they began to beat Paul, physically beating Paul, and it's at that point then the Roman guard steps in because the Roman guard in that day was quick to squelch any type of uprising that might threaten the the peace of Rome. And so the Roman guard steps in and they take Paul into custody. And I'd encourage you, take time to read these chapters later. Then in chapter 22, we see how Paul is given opportunity to speak to the crowd, the very ones who were just beating him. Paul then is speaking to them. And what does he do? He gives them his testimony, right? Paul doesn't stand up and berate the crowd. He doesn't say, why did you do this to me? Instead, Paul gives them Jesus. Oh, church, if we would have the same attitude. Paul speaks to the crowd. He gives them his testimony. And then the people, how do the people respond? Do they respond uh, in, in wanting to trust in Jesus? No, again, the people respond in an uproar. And so again, the Romans, uh, they, right, there's another uprising. And then the Romans again, what do they do? They, they take Paul into custody again, or, or they take him back into custody. And in fact, the Romans, they want to kind of figure out, okay, what's, what's the big deal? What, what's, what's going on? And they begin as a way of trying to get information out of Paul, they begin to scourge Paul but then Paul then he kind of plays plays that trump card and he says but wait a second you're I'm a Roman citizen and you've not given me a fair trial how can you beat me if I'm a Roman citizen you're what you're doing is unlawful they stop the scourging at that point 
And again, so then they, like, it's a back and forth. They release him back to the high priest. They charge him with, with all of these false accusations. The people again start to, to attack. And it says that it's like they're literally starting to tear Paul apart. The Roman guard steps back in and saves Paul from the very people that he's trying to reach. And then, and then the, the, the Jews start to plot again uh, another way in which they can kill Paul as, he's, as the Roman guard is taking Paul along the road. I mean, it's just, it is all just, it's, it's all just seems to be blowing up here, right? And, and we're going to see here at chapter 24, Paul is going to find himself, stay, he's going to find himself on trial before this Roman governor by the name of Felix, okay? But I want us, I want us to see here in the middle of, of everything seeming to just kind of be going crazy in Paul's life. Again, because Paul is committed to telling people about Jesus and understand that he's willing to endure all of these beatings, all of this persecution, all of this jockeying back and forth where he's standing before the, high, the Jewish council, the high priest, and then he'll be standing before these, gov- these Roman governors and these false accusations. Paul is doing all of it for one reason. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is true. That's why. Paul says it is, Jesus is worth it. He says Jesus is worth it. And in fact, it's, maybe this can be an encouragement to you. Uh, in the middle of chapter 23 at verse 11, go ahead and look, look here because I, this is very important, especially as Paul endures all of these difficulties for the sake of Christ. It says there in verse 11 that the following night of chapter 23, it says the following night, the Lord stood near Paul. And he said this, and he said, take courage. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Church, if you underline in your Bible, if you mark anything in your Bible, those two words might be words of great encouragement to you today as well. To take courage courage that as you do your best to live for the Lord as you do your best to run the race the course that God has marked out that he has set before you and as as you encounter difficulties as you encounter hardships um, as you encounter uh, difficult people, persecution in different ways as you maybe even encounter diagnosis. Maybe those words are words that you need to hear this morning. The words of take courage. What a gift that Jesus gave to Paul. That as he's in the middle, as he's in the throes of, of all of this persecution, of all of of this imprisonment, of all of these false accusations, that Jesus would come, such a loving Savior to us, that Jesus would come alongside Paul. I almost, I, like, I almost imagine, right, as Jesus appears before Paul, you know, was it in a, a vision, a dream? I don't, I don't know. But, but I almost envision, like, if Jesus could, he maybe right, almost sticks his arm around Paul and says, take courage. 
take courage. And it's with this courage, it's with this promise of, of Jesus' presence there in Paul's life that, that now he is going to stand before these, the most, some of the most powerful men and women of this day and age. Paul is standing before them. And how do we stand before them? Not, as, not in our own cowardly strength, but with the courage of Jesus right there with us. Our big idea for this morning's lesson is this, to remain committed, knowing Jesus is with you. That we would remain committed, because this is what we see. We see Paul, again, from, from the, the rest of this book of the Bible, the rest of these, the, of these chapters are going to be within the context of Paul being under Roman custody, either imprisoned or on his way to another trial. And he's going to be, it, again, it's, it's all going to happen within that context. And does Paul, does Paul get, like, does he just say, well, forget this, right? This isn't what I signed up for. No, none of that. Paul remains committed because Jesus is worth it. And Jesus says, I'll be with you. Take courage. And so let's walk through this. This chapter really is broken up into, into three very, uh, rather simple points. The first, we're going to see the case that's going to be presented against Paul. We're going to see then Paul's defense. And then at the end, we're going to see how the governor Felix, how he, he's put in a position to make a decision, but he doesn't make a decision. It re, it's a decision really that, that is more for himself than anyone else. But let's go ahead and let's look at this first section. As, and again, we're, we're going to try to go through chapter 24 verse by verse. And, and so follow along with me there in verse 1. It says, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, here's where we find ourselves. Again, right, last, last week, where, where were we at? We were in Caesarea. You might remember Paul was spending time there with, a, with that guy by the name of Philip, right? The, Philip the evangelist, one of the original seven. Uh, Paul left Caesarea. He went back to Jerusalem. What we see now is that the Roman guard has now taken Paul back to Caesarea to stand uh, before this governor, Felix. And we're going to see what a, what a gift being in Caesarea is going to end up to be for Paul himself. But we see here that the chapter begins essentially more of, of like a courtroom scene. Present inside the courtroom, we see the high priest, Ananias. We see some elders. We see an attorney named Tertullus. I, I'm not exactly sure if that's how you pronounce it, but we'll go with it. All right, Tertullus is a, is a Roman. Keep that in mind. He's a Roman attorney, and he would have been more familiar with the Roman legal system. So the Jews have hired a Roman attorney here. He would have known how to prosecute a case against someone, especially before uh, some Roman uh, governor, this by, man by the name of Felix. And so I almost feel like it's like they've called the heavy hitter, right? You know, like, did this Tertullus have billboards around the Roman Empire, right? You know, and we all now have in our minds the heavy hitter because we've all seen the billboards, right? But it's almost like they call in this, this attorney, this secret weapon, right? This, this guy who's going to go in and he's going to use the little evidence we got, we got and he's going to make it happen. And so we see... Um, that, that this Tertullus is going to present the case uh, before Felix. Now we jump then into verses 2 through 4. 
When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. And this is, this is what is how the prosecuting, the prosecution is now beginning their, uh, their remarks. He says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Okay, so the attorney is going to begin his presentation with, uh, with lines of flattery. Let's just say that. He's trying to butter Felix up because we have to understand that uh, Felix really was not a nice guy. All right, he, uh, he was not a man of peace. Instead, he would go to great lengths, uh, of course, to squelch any uprisings to keep the peace, but those ways in which he was squelching the peace was not, uh, was not peaceful. And so, so we see the attorney really is waxing eloquence uh, because, again, Felix's term in office is one that's marked by insurgency, by one uprising after another, and Felix's injustice toward them. Then in verses 5 through 8, now he's going to get into some of the accusations. All right, so Tertullus is now turning his attention. It's almost like he's, he's looking now at Paul, and he is saying, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and he even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we seized him. And he goes on, he says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. So in his argument, like any good attorney is going to try to do, he's seeking to convince Felix that Paul is a disruption to the peace of the region. Okay, he's a disruption to the peace. Rome took great pride in their, their attempt to have a peaceful society. And so we notice here there are, there are several different ways, several different accusations that, that Tertullus brings before Felix. He says that Paul is a troublemaker. The NIV uh, translates it as a troublemaker. The New American Standard Version, which is the version that I tend to study from, uh, calls him a pest. Uh, he says that Paul is actually a pest. As well, he claims that Paul is a political agitator. We also see that another accusation is that Paul is the leader of this, this like fringe group, these Nazarenes, this sectarian movement. And he also says that Paul is disrupting the temple worship. All right? So, so we notice that the, the accusations that are presented before Felix really cater more toward political motives, right? The, the concerns of the Jews really were theological, not political, but Tertullus, again, who wants to try to win this argument, he frames it in such a way that, that Paul is a threat to your civil society here. And so that's the accusations that he's making through his argument. The attorney is trying to show Paul as being a headache, headache to Felix. And basically, right, Tertullus is going to basically give Felix two options. He's, he's going to basically say either you can convict Paul of disturbing the peace or convict him of treason or really what the Jews wanted. They didn't want Paul convicted of anything. Instead, what they were interested in is they just wanted the Roman governor to turn Paul over to them. That's what they wanted. And we know that there was already a plot to, to take Paul out. 
okay? Again, like this isn't this incredible movie scene, right? So you got the mob boss over here trying to figure out how are we going to jump Paul on his way to Caesarea. And so that's, that's ultimately, that's what they want. And then in verse 9, we see that the other Jews, they joined into the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So I can only imagine that as Tertullus is standing there before Felix there in the courtroom scene, then you got the entourage, the Jewish entourage saying, yeah, that's right, yeah, what he said, that's right. And so they all join in and they say, yes, what he says is true. So these are the accusations. Again, this is the case against Paul. Now we're going to see in Paul's defense, Paul is going to help us see that these accusations are unfounded, are not true. And so Follow along then in verses 10 through 13. Now Felix the governor is going to give Paul an opportunity. It says, when the governor motioned for Paul to speak, Paul re- replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, and so I gladly make my defense. We notice that Paul doesn't have to try to grease the skids here. He doesn't have to try to use flattery to win Felix over. Instead, Paul is just going to say, I'm going to give you the facts and nothing but the facts. And so he says, I gladly make my defense. Verse 11, he says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anyone else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Paul begins his defense by stating that the case against him is weak. The accusers really have no real evidence to prove their case. Basically, what Paul says is, the fact that I showed up just 12 days ago means that how, how, did, how did I even have enough time to, to rile up some sort of riot in such short of time? How could I establish some sort of right, great movement against these people in, in a short time of 12 days prior? All right, so Paul's opening remarks, what he's doing is he's trying to pull the rug out from underneath the case that's against him, showing their evidence to be lacking therefore giving reason why this case should be thrown out. And we notice here that, that I think verse 13 is a helpful verse. He says, and they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. We have to understand that Paul numerous times throughout his letters spoke about the importance of living a life above reproach, of being concerned about your public witness, he lived a life of, to, to, to live in such a way that, that it would be impossible for people to bring any charges against you of any misdeed or misconduct or, or any way in which you have lived in, in an immoral way according to what Scripture teaches us. And I think in the same way, right, we too as believers should be able to stand as well. And later on in the chapter, Paul is going to say, right, I live without a guilty conscience. That we too as believers should seek to live our lives in such a way that's above reproach. That those who accuse us of any wrongdoing will be unable to present any bit of evidence in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're instructed with these words, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. 
Peter continues, he says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Paul's primary means of evidence in this case is the life that he has lived. A life that he has sought to live above reproach. So well timed. (laughs) A life that is above reproach that impresses even the newborns of this world, right? But that it's it's above reproach that your neighbors, that your co-workers, that they have nothing to go off of and accusing you of any wrongdoing. That the only accusation, that the only credible accusation that can be brought before us is that we were faithful to the Lord. Let that be the primary accusation that you are found guilty of. That you lived a life faithful to the Lord. And if that is deserving of the world's condemnation, then so be it. And we trust the Lord in that. Paul continues on then in verses 14 and 16. Let's follow along with him as he continues to make his defense here. He says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect or that fringe movement. But he says, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And he says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. In verses 14 through 16, Paul does indeed admit to certain activities, to certain beliefs, but none of them are crimes. In fact, what Paul does is he he says, what I believe here, what I'm standing up for, right? It goes right in line with what these Jewish people who are accusing me of wrongdoing, it goes right in line with what they believe. So Paul's willing, so Paul's statement here in verses 14 and 15, they're, honestly, they're quite fascinating because it's here in verse 14 where Paul prompts them to consider Okay, what what does he say? He says, I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. In other words, what what Paul is saying is, I've not flip-flopped to a different God. I'm not changing the story here. He is saying the God I worship is the same God that my ancestors worship. It's the same God of the Old, Old Testament. But when he says, when he introduces the way, what is he doing? He's in a subliminal way. He's introducing Jesus. And what is he saying here? He's helping them to understand that Jesus is the one who finishes the story. That that all that you believe in the Old Testament points to Jesus, right? He is saying that Jesus is the completion of Judaism. Jesus is the completion of Judaism. And then in verse 15, he emphasizes how the resurrection is the hope of Judaism. The the Jews believe in a coming resurrection. They just failed to believe in the one who, who, through whom resurrection, a, a resurrection into new life is made possible. And it's in Christ Jesus. So Paul's declaration is not that he's preaching against Judaism. 
Instead, he is merely helping them to understand, (laughs) for those of you who might remember, he's helping them to understand, as Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. That's what he's doing. So he's saying, I'm I'm not diverting from what they claim to believe. I'm only helping them to see how the story ends. So he's not betraying his heritage, but instead, Paul has come to understand the fulfillment of everything that he was taught. I think we should consider Christ Jesus' words regarding the statements here in, in verses 14 and 15, right? In Matthew 5, 17, what did Jesus say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them, to finish the story. Then in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So in his argument, Paul has simply linked his faith of the way with true Jewish orthodoxy of the past. He's linked Jesus' resurrection with their belief in in the resurrection of the dead. And, and he's trying to help them to see how Jesus finishes the story. So Paul's proving his point to them. That their accusations that somehow he is leading some sort of fringe sectarian group. That's, he's saying it, it's just not true. And, and once again, what we see here, right, at, at the end of that, Verse 16, he says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul again reiterates how he lives matters. Our witness in this world matters. What your neighbors say about you matters, not to your glory, but to God's glory. And then we look then at verses 17 through 20. Right, and Paul is continuing his defense. He says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. He says, I was ceremonially, I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. He says, there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. And so what Paul is saying, this idea that I'm, that I'm a threat to the public safety or to to the public peace is not true. He said, I didn't show up with an entourage or trying to rile up a riot. But instead in verse 19, it says, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia. And if you go back and read verses, uh, chapters 22 and 23, you'll see this. It says, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia. They ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have against me because it was these Jews from the province of Asia, Asia who originally brought the false accusations before Paul and they were the ones who riled up the crowd and established the riot. And Paul says, as he's there on trial before Felix, he says, the quote-unquote key witnesses in your case didn't even show up to present their argument. That's what he's saying here. He says, they ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have any, anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Again, the conclusion to be made here is that there's no substance to the case. And then in verse 21, Paul continues. He says, unless it is this one thing, 
I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial to you today. Again, what is Paul reiterating? That Jesus is alive. Paul reiterates that he's done any, that if he's done anything wrong and none of this is being wrong, Paul is reminding the Jewish leaders of their own belief in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul, again, is calling people to believe in Jesus there. I mean, okay, so what, what were Jesus' words to Paul? Back in verse 11, chapter 23, what were his words? Take courage. Take courage. Right? When, when we as followers of Jesus Christ, when we are accused of wrongdoing or when, when, when maybe persecution or things are set about us because maybe because we don't believe the way in which the world believes. I mean, like, I tell you what, like, I surrender all that song that Michael led us in this morning. That song does like the words you sang, if you sang that song and you were thinking about the words as you sang that song, you should have been reminded that you are not living as the world lives. I surrender all. The world says, gather up as much as you can for yourself and use it for yourself, for your own pleasure, your own comfort. I surrender all means give your life for others, right? Be willing to stand up against the crowd. And we can only do this if we believe those same words that Jesus told Paul. Take courage. Take courage. That we would, be, that we would remain committed knowing that Jesus is with us. Well then, okay, so now... It's presented, right? You, you have the prosecuting attorney. They've presented their case. You have Paul who has now presented his case right now. All eyes are on Felix, right? What is his decision going to be? What is, what is he going to do? What's he going to say? Well, let's read along here in verses, uh, starting in verse 22 through 23. It says, then Felix, it's interesting, who was well acquainted with the way. Let's just stop there. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way. In other words, he was familiar with those who were following Jesus. He was familiar with it. And, and it kind of makes you wonder, how did, how, did, how did Felix, this Roman governor, hear about Jesus or the way? Because it says right there, then Felix who was well acquainted with these Christians. How? Who lives in Caesarea? Who did we learn last week lives in Caesarea? I just have to wonder if Philip the evangelist, who had spent time in Caesarea, living there for 20 years, if through Philip and the other believers there, living lives above reproach, Felix says, oh, I'm familiar with those Christians. And so verse 22, it says, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, what did he do? He adjourned the proceedings. In other words, he says, okay, time out, right? We're done here. He says, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, 
guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to come and take care of his needs. So what is the big decision, right? When that gavel strikes, right? What's the decision that Felix is going to make? Well, what does Felix do? He makes an indecision. He doesn't decide anything. He kind of he just punts the decision. He says, well, when, when the Roman commander who originally took Paul into captivity, when he shows up, we'll converse about it, we'll talk about it, and then we'll make a decision. And so we see here, that Paul, that Felix, honestly, is more or less a coward. He's a people pleaser. He's only in it for himself, as we'll see then later. All right? Uh, we, we see that, that Philip, then, what, what, what does Felix do? Felix actually gives, he, he kind of loosens Phil, uh, uh, Paul's confinement a little bit doesn't he? he? He gives him a little bit more freedom. And then what else is also allowed to have happen? He, he's going to allow Paul's friends to visit him while being confined. What a gift that God would have Paul in Caesarea where Philip is, who's already shown Paul hospitality. And you've got to know that Philip is probably lining up a meal train for Paul, right? Probably saying, okay, who's taking Paul? Who's got the meatballs this week, right? Or, or who, who, who's got the, who's, who's taking Paul the gifts this week? Who's going to visit Paul while, while he's there in prison? I think at times we have to be reminded that God is working his purposes out, that he is, he is achieving his purposes in ways that we would never expect, that we would never plan, right? From a purely human point of view, if we're looking at this simply through our human eyes, we would think, man, what a bum deal for Paul, right? Paul being confined, being imprisoned, what a bum deal. Paul needs to be out visiting these churches, but we see here that God is going to be working in the midst of Paul, through Paul, in the midst of these circumstances, regardless that God has a way of turning some of the most discouraging, difficult situations, that God has a way of using them for his glory with this. Then look, look what happens, verses 24 through 26, right? We're going to make it all the way through this, church. It says, several days later, Felix, what happens? Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul doing? Right? Felix now invites Paul and wants to have conversations with Paul. In, verses, in verse 25 it says, As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That word talked is the same word. It, it gives us the meaning of a dialogue. That Paul is not standing up preaching, right? Beating on his Bible and, and, and right, do it, giving him fire and brimstone. Instead, it's a dialogue that is taking place. In fact, it's the same word, that dialogue is the same word that is used back in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is there in Athens, right, on Mars Hill, and it talks about how Paul had a dialogue with the people, Dr. Uh, Steve Dill, Dr. Dill had shared with me after preaching uh, through Acts chapter 17 some time ago, uh, Dr. Dill reminded me of just what this looked like. Uh, Dr. Dill sent me this email. He said that Paul's technique for sharing the gospel 
is shown to us here in Acts chapter 17 because it says that Paul reasoned with them. Dr. Dill goes on and he says, in Greek it says he dialogued with them. In other words, Steve says, Paul didn't monologue with them, but instead uh, Paul had a conversation. Steve Dill said he didn't go up there in front of the people with a jackhammer, right? And just kind of beat it in them. Do any of you ever try to do that with other people, right? Sometimes you try to beat it in them. We see the example that's given to us here as as Paul is having these conversations with, with Felix, again, the Roman governor and his wife, Drusilla. What is he doing? He's conversing with them. He's having a conversation with them. It was, it was a give and a take. But Paul's not compromising the gospel. Because what do we see here? It says, as tall, what did Paul talk about? Look there in verse 25. It says, Paul talked about righteousness, about self-control, and the judgment to come. Oh, man, let me just tell you, Paul is not beating around the bush with Felix. Paul is going straight to the heart of the matter. Drusilla was Felix's third wife, right? Felix had seduced her from her previous husband. And so Paul is, Paul is, is I mean, he's in this dialogue. He, he, is, he is talking about self-control, right? Some, a message Felix would have needed to hear from them. He's talking about righteousness, living a righteous life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the judgment to come that we will be held accountable for our actions and, and for what we say and for what we do. Notice here, though, it says that Felix, he would get afraid. You see that? It says Felix was afraid and Felix would say, well, that's enough for now. <laughs> you may leave. And when I find it convenient, Felix says, I'll send for you because I'd like to continue this conversation. It's just right now, it's got, the temperature has gotten a little bit too hot for me in here. And at the same time, of course, Felix, the whole time it says there in verse 26, at the same time, Felix is hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. And so he would send for Paul frequently, hoping that finally at some point, Paul would say, man, I got to get out of here. here. How much is it going to cost? I think this is remarkable that Felix and his wife Drusilla would sit and listen to Paul share the gospel with them. It already says that Felix was very familiar with the believers, with the way. Now we have no idea, right? It, it, history does not seem to record that, that Felix ever trusted in Jesus, right? Or that his wife ever came to know the Lord or to surrender. They never would be able, they, they never sang the song, I surrender all but I think for you, I think for each of us here today, maybe the temperature of your heart has gotten a little bit warm. Don't be like Felix, who ignores, that, who ignores the Holy Spirit working in your heart and, and tune this message out. Right? Don't be like Felix who, who says, okay, that's enough for now. When it's convenient for me, for my schedule, then you can come back and we can talk more about it. My, my encouragement to you is if you sense God in your heart, 
warming your heart if what we speak about, if, if God's word, as, or as we sing songs as a congregation, as we open God's word, if you sense that God is calling you to repentance, to acknowledge your need for a Savior, don't be like Felix. And, and leave and walk away and say, I'll do that when it's convenient for me. I'll, I'll put it off to another day. Church, we don't know if that other day will ever come. Scripture tells us that today should be our day of salvation. That, should, that you should take full advantage of the grace that is made available to you today. It's a great tragedy. It seems that one of the great tragedies is how Felix and Drusilla continued to put to how they continued to postpone a decision to follow Jesus. Imagine having Paul speak to you about the truths of scriptures for how long? For two years. And never come to salvation. Such a tremendous opportunity being squandered away, being forfeited. Don't allow that to be your story. Trust in Jesus today. And then we get to verse 27, the end of chapter 24. We made it, church. When two years had passed. Church, I want you to understand, two years had passed. That Paul, who based on false accusations, is, has been imprisoned. For how long? For two years. It says Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, what did he do? It was typical that when a governor would, when governors would change, that the prisoners would be released. That those who were in prison underneath that governor's authority, those prisoners would be released. But so, so it's significant here that 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 it's mentioned that when Felix's role as governor, when he, that comes to a completion, that, that Paul remains in custody. Now, I think here, church, we have to understand this, that God was being so gracious to Paul by keeping him imprisoned. That God was working in a way that Paul and these believers probably would have never dreamed of. Because if Paul were to be released from outside the guard of the Roman authorities, what's going to happen? Paul's done. The Jews, there, there, were, there were men who had committed. They said, we will not eat. You'll read it as you read chapters 22 and 23. They, they say, we will not eat. We will not sleep. We won't drink. We're, we're not going to do anything until Paul is dead. That God used this imprisonment to pre as a means of preserving his life so that Paul can ultimately declare the gospel before Caesar himself. Church, what situation has God given you to glorify Him in. What scenario, what circumstance, what difficulty has God allowed to bring in, has God allowed to come into your life 
so that you can use it as a platform, as an opportunity to share the gospel with other people. And how do we do that with boldness? We do it right here. We, we remain committed. Why? Knowing Jesus is with you. And in our mind, and in our, in our heart, in our minds, in our hearts, what do we hear the words of our Savior saying to us? Take courage. Take courage. Take courage. Remain committed to the call that I have before you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for this example of Paul's life, his testimony before us. Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to take courage uh, to share the gospel, to be willing to stand. Um, most of us won't be standing before governors or Roman authorities or civic leaders. But each of us will have the opportunity to stand before our family members, our friends will be given opportunity to stand before teammates, co-workers will be given the opportunity to stand before our neighbors, those who live right around the corner from us. And we'll be able to tell them about Jesus. God, when we're tempted to um, speak about other things, Lord, help us to remain committed. Help us, Lord, to hear those words of Jesus to echo in our hearts and our minds to take courage and to be quick to lovingly share the good news of a living Savior who's living today and we pray is coming soon. And I lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.